Hi, and it's great to be with you again as part of our devoted series. Uh, what we've been doing, if you're new or if you're kind of new to the church or new to Christianity even this morning, what we've been doing is looking at four things that the early church were devoted to, committed to, as part of their expression of Christian worship right from the beginning of the church. And we've really based the whole series in just one verse, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 which says, of the church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we did in week one, to the fellowship or life in common, which we did last week, to the breaking of bread, which we're going to do this week, and to the prayers, which we've been doing in our midweek gatherings, devoting ourselves to prayer. And so that's provided us sort of with the structure of the series. And then this morning, we're going to be looking at what it means to be devoted to the breaking of bread. And that may be a first for a lot of us here. I don't know. It may be the first time that you've been in a church like this where someone has preached on that sort of subject. Because if you're from an Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic background, and some of us are, then you will have probably experienced a very high level of focus on this meal, but you probably didn't call it the breaking of bread. You probably called it the Eucharist, maybe, or the Mystic Supper, or the Divine Liturgy, or the Mass. And so, but you probably are used to a kind of church where that is the high point of the whole meeting or the service, and you're perhaps unused to a church like this where some weeks we don't even do it. Many weeks we don't. And if you're from a more traditional Protestant background, like maybe Anglicanism, and particularly in a more high church context, you will probably have also experienced a high level of focus on this meal, but you wouldn't have called it the Mass or the Mystic Supper. You would have called it maybe the Eucharist or maybe Communion or Holy Communion. And a friend of mine who's from Ghana in the church, and I said to her, like, you know, what, what did you used to call breaking bread where you're from? And she said, well, I had never heard it called breaking bread until I came to King's. We always called it Holy Communion, we, but we never called it breaking bread. I'd never heard that phrase until I came here. So that might, it might be a bit new to some of us from that sort of background. Some of us, of course, are not Christians at all. We've come to church, and maybe we've been in the church a while, but we may or may not follow Jesus, or we may not be sure if we do. And so for you, it may well just still seem really quite bizarre that a group of people stand and pass round bread and wine or juice as a way of participating in the death of Jesus and sharing its benefits. It just seems like a strange thing to do, because people in our modern world don't tend to do that. In the ancient world, it was very common. If you worshipped a god, you would participate in a sort of meal with the god. But in our world, that's very unusual for most people, and so that may be quite new to you. And if your main experience of Christianity is in a church like this, which would be a lot of our stories, you know, used to a charismatic or a Pentecostal sort of evangelical Christianity... You may never have heard a message on this subject before that lasted more than three or four minutes. You may have never heard it taught on systematically, and so that will probably be a first for some of us. So there's a lot of reasons why people here might be thinking, mm, I'm devoted to the breaking of bread? I just never really thought about that. So what we're going to do is look at two passages from 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, to try and figure out exactly what happens when we break bread or share the Lord's Supper, or celebrate the Eucharist, or take communion, all mean the same thing. What happens when we do that, and why? And so what I want to do is three things. The first one will take the longest. The first thing I want to do is to look at what Paul says in the Bible sharing the Lord's Supper actually involves. And then the second thing I want to do is to ask you a question about it and get you to momentarily discuss it. And then thirdly, I want to look at how we've practically celebrated together 
and then we're, of course, going to finish by breaking bread together at the end. So let's read 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to begin at verse 14, and then we're going to jump into chapter 11 in a minute as well. So we have the church in Corinth, which is near Athens in Greece, is making a total dog's breakfast of the Lord's Supper. And Paul is writing this to correct them in the way they are thinking about it and confront them about it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now we're going to jump into chapter 11, verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, Paul begins this section. There's two different sections addressing different issues in the church. One is one of sort of drunkenness and chaos at the Lord's Supper, everybody grabbing their own thing and marginalizing the poor. And the other one is of eating the wrong kind of worship meals and eating meals in pagan temples in worship to other gods. So he's got two problems. And he begins addressing them in chapter 10 and verse 16, I think. The first way Paul comes at the issue is to describe the Lord's Supper as a moment of blessing. It's a moment in which we bless God and he blesses us. So in verse 16 it says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The Lord's Supper is a moment of blessing. And this might not be a word we often associate with it, perhaps, but this is a moment where we come to bless and to be blessed. We come to bless God and to have God bless us with a meal. Right? Psalm 104 is beautiful on this. It just talks about wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen his heart. So wine and bread are these sort of beautiful symbols of the blessing of God, the favor of God, the fact that God gives us those things. The physical blessings of bread and wine bring with them great spiritual blessings. That's why they're such powerful symbols. 
Right? Does anything in creation, I ask you this seriously, does anything in creation smell tastier or make you hungrier than fresh bread? Right? I can think of only two other contenders, the smell of fresh coffee, but that doesn't make you hungry, so that's not quite right, or the smell of frying bacon, which, if you're Jewish, is not the best application. So, but to me, the smell of fresh bread, there is nothing like it. You walk past a bakery, and you just find yourself changing direction and wandering in. Oh, just drawn to the smell of fresh It's a beautiful gift from God. It's a, a blessing that there is such a thing as bread. Does anything evoke joy and relaxation and peace more than a glass of wine? Whether you, actually, whether you like wine or not, some of us don't like wine, we don't drink, but there is still something symbolic about this drink that communicates joy and peace and relaxation all around the world and all across history. And in the Jewish prophets, bread symbolizes God's daily provision for our needs and wine represents the joy of the kingdom to come. So if you ever do a study on it and look through the Old Testament at references to wine, you'll be amazed how much the prophets talk about wine as a symbol of the blessing of the new creation. Because they're saying, this is a beautiful symbol of joy and peace and everything being made right. And so when they talk about the new creation, wine is flowing everywhere. So it is fitting that these two gifts carry with them the blessings of Jesus' body and blood. They are physical blessings that represent spiritual blessings to us. And so if you miss out on the Lord's Supper, you don't take communion or break bread together. You miss out on blessing. And so we bless him, God, as well. So Paul is beginning by saying, actually, this is a moment of blessing. That's the first thing he says it is. It also involves, secondly, participation. Participation in the body and blood of Jesus. This is also in verse 16. The cup of blessing we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now that again, and some of us are going to think we keep coming back to this word, that again is the word koinonia, which we met last week, translated kind of fellowship there. This week we might call it participation or communion. But again, we looked last week and said this is, like, this is life in common. This word, is it not, when we come together to break bread, are we not experiencing life in common with Jesus? Are we not participating in Jesus somehow? Are we not communing with him? And often in evangelical churches or charismatic Pentecostal churches like this one, we can, whether deliberately or not, kind of maintain this position that communion doesn't do anything. This is just a symbol. It doesn't have any power. It's just a symbol. I don't think that's true at all. I think actually Paul is saying, no, when you do this, you are actually participating in the body and blood of Jesus. That might sound mysterious to you, and it is, but that's what's happening. It's not just a symbol. It is a symbol, but it's a symbol, again, with teeth. It's a symbol that does something. It's a symbol that gets you caught up in participation with the body and blood of Jesus. We share in him as we share in them. I had a friend who, I remember we, we, were, we did our gap year together, and she, was, um, she would sometimes get hold of her Bible and kind of hold it really close like this. And I remember her saying once, she just said, sometimes I just, she was not from a Christian family, and she just said, sometimes I really want to feel physically close to God, so I just grab my Bible and hug it. And actually, I, I didn't, at the time, I didn't realize this, but as I got older, I began to think, do you know what? What she was really crying out for was communion. She was saying, I want a physical representation of Jesus that I can kind of physically engage with in some way and commune in him and participate in him. And that's exactly what the bread and the wine are. 
That's what they're there to do. So the Lord's Supper involves participation. The Eucharist involves, or whatever we call it, the Eucharist involves blessing and participation. It also involves unity. And you get this if you look at 10, 17, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And the logic of that sentence looks upside down in some ways, I I suspect, to some of us. Because we would think we are one body, so we all share in one bread. That's the way around I imagine we would think. We are a body, so we share in one bread. But Paul thinks we share one bread, and therefore we who are many are one body. That's the logic, isn't it? Because there's one bread, we are one body. So meals, in Paul's thinking, meals bring unity. They bring unity with God, and they bring unity with one another. Tables make many into one. Eating unites people. And we'll talk more, a lot more about this in the Invited series that's coming up. But this is a huge theme in Scripture, that when you eat together, it draws people together. So it's not that you are one, so now let's have a meal. It's, no, let's have a meal. And as we have a meal, we become one. So the other way around from the way we might think. And that's why Paul gets so angry about the social divisions in chapter 11. When he gets, in, in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. That's what he's noticing. He's saying, these people, are. I've got more food and drink. I brought loads. I'll sit here with my rich friends and have a, a, a get, get drunk on the wine and eat loads of food. And meanwhile, the poor brother down the, down the hallway is eating le- next to nothing. And Paul sees that and it makes him angry because he recognizes that the meal, which is meant to bring unity, is actually bringing division. And so he says, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? And I think the what in, in verse 22 is intended to be said in that kind of tone of voice. What? Because he's angry that something that brings unity should be a symbol of division. He's saying, this is not the Lord's supper that you eat. It's your supper. And we don't gather together to eat your supper. We gather together to eat his, the Lord's supper. So the Lord's supper brings blessing and participation and unity. Now look at verse chapter 11 and verses 23 to 24. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. This is a meal of thanksgiving. It's a meal in which Jesus gives thanks, and we join him in giving thanks for the gift that he has given us. And the Greek word there for give thanks is eucharisteo, which means I thank, if you like. So eucharisteo gives us our word eucharist. So a lot of churches, some of us are from traditional churches that would use that word. Um, And this is a thanks, in other words, they're saying this is a thanksgiving meal. The reason why they call it the eucharist is the eucharisteo, I thank. This is a moment we come together to thank. This is a thanksgiving meal. And uh, God is giving to us and we are receiving from him. That's what this meal, so what we do is we come to the bread and the wine or the juice and we say, God, you have given to us in this meal. Thank you. We are recipients, not givers in this moment. God is our host at dinner. He invites us to his table. He provides. We receive and we thank. This year... 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation, which turned Europe upside down and changed the face of Christianity, really. And one of the most striking physical differences between 
before and after the Reformation in a lot of European countries was the transformation that took place from altars into tables. So what used to happen in a lot of medieval Europe, and still did after the Reformation in a lot of Catholic churches, was there would be an altar which the priest would approach with the bread and the wine and would turn his back on the people and would sort of offer up like this, facing God on behalf of the people, as if, in a way, representing the elements to God. And what changed at the Reformation was instead of facing this way, the priest would turn and face the people and present the gifts from God to them instead of presenting the gifts from them to God. That little change in the liturgy or in the form of the meeting was a dramatic theological move that said we do not think of this as a moment when we bring a sacrifice to God, but when God gives his sacrifice to us in these gifts. And it makes all the difference in the world. He feeds us and we thank him. This is a a thanksgiving meal, a Eucharist, if you like. Then, chapter 11, verses 24 to 25, comes the most famous line, at least in the circles of churches that we are part of probably, do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Breaking bread is a remembrance of a covenant. We look back and we remind ourselves of what God has done. That's what we do as we gather. We, we are remembering God's commitment to us in blood to make a covenant with us. And the amazing aspect of this, of course, is that when Jesus originally said it, they were in the middle of a covenant meal that was already remembering something else. Right? So Jesus is saying, we say it now, and everyone knows it's about Jesus because it's a Christian meal. But when Jesus said it that night at the Last Supper, this was already a meal. This was a Passover meal that was looking back to a covenant that had been made a long time ago, 1,400 years back or so. And they are all gathering around this meal. And Jesus says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I mean, just imagine the shock of it's the 11th of November in this country and everybody is celebrating Remembrance Day. And then whatever it might be, the prime minister says... Actually, I want us to do this in memory of Brexit. Right? I'm not saying that would be a good thing. I'm just saying, imagine the shock. Imagine, what, the, what are you saying? You're changing the meaning of this very rich symbol that's really old in our history and very important. Many people have died for it and turning it into something completely different. Now, of course, it's not the same with Jesus because Jesus is, not in that strange way, the fulfillment of the Exodus story. But you can probably get a sense of the shock they might have felt on hearing that sort of statement. Do this Passover meal, remembering the exodus from slavery, in remembrance of me, because what I'm doing is bringing you out of a greater slavery. My followers are not just to remember the Passover, he's saying, they are to remember me and this covenant in my blood. 11.26, two more to go. Chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the death of Christ and a proclamation that he's coming back. Right? It looks both backwards to the cross in the past and it looks forwards to the resurrection in the future. That's why he's saying, as often as you do this, you, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, are proclaiming the death of Jesus until he returns again. 
There is an eschatological note here. There is something that looks forward to the last days. Said Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, Jesus will come again, is being enacted in this meal as you take it, even if you're not aware that that's what you're doing. And then finally, because of all of this rich symbolism, the Eucharist or communion or whatever we call it is something to take seriously with self-examination. 11, 27 to 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat and drink. That, by the way, is why in this church and in Christian churches around the world, we say the Lord's Supper is for people who have repented of their sins. Because it's serious, actually. It's because this involves participating in Jesus. So this is a serious thing. So if you know you haven't repented of your sins because you're not a Christian yet, or you, know, you have become a believer but you are not repentant of your sins now and you're living in rebellion against God in some way, you should avoid this meal. But at the same time, the beautiful edge of it is that this makes a great context for people to respond to the gospel as believers. So in the church I, I used to be part of leading, the, the guy who leads the team and his wife, she became a believer through taking the Lord's Supper. That was her response to the gospel. She was feeling Jesus was stirring her heart and she believed the gospel. She thought, how do I respond? And she took the bread and the wine as the statement of faith and it changed her life. This is a great moment to do that. If you want to respond to Jesus in faith, for dying on the cross for you, rising again, giving you new life, this is a wonderful way to express it. So here's the question I'd love you to consider for a moment. Right? That's seven things that the Lord's Supper does or that breaking bread does or represents. And they're not the only ones, but I think they're most of them and they're the main ones Paul talks about anyway. Of those seven, which ones do you think we emphasize the most? And which ones do you think we emphasize the least? Right? Blessing, participation, unity, thanksgiving, remembrance, proclamation, self-examination. I'm just going to throw this out there. Turn to the person next to you, and I'll give you about 30 seconds just to say, well, probably this one or that one, that's the one we do the most. Just turn to the person next to you and say, I, in my experience, even if I'm very new, my experience is probably these are the ones we emphasize the most. Okay, so if you just come back together again, and I hope even just to think about that might be a helpful exercise. I don't know uh, how, people, how you responded. I could make a couple of guesses, I suppose, um, and my guesses might or might not align with yours. But whatever you came up with, my guess is that it has something to do with the way we practice the Lord's Supper in the church, or in the church that you're familiar with, whether that's this church or another one. In other words, it has something to do with our liturgy, our form of worship, the sort of things we do. So this is an extreme, but at worst, communion can be a time for a prolonged period of intense, glum weirdness, where people who have been happy until that point in the meeting suddenly become very brooding and odd 
and start using language that they would never normally use and looking very grumpy and then sitting there in awkward silence and putting their head beneath their knees and thinking about what a terrible person they are. And then communion finishes and they go back to being happy that Jesus has saved them again. Now, that's a bit of a cartoon, but you might recognize it. And of course there is, as I've said, a place for self-examination. So I don't decry that, but that is not the only thing that's going on here. And what we may find, my guess is, that many of us are used to emphasizing remembrance and possibly self-examination, and that the other five are not emphasized as much, at least in this kind of church, often. It can, however, breaking bread can be an opportunity to express all of the things on Paul's list, if you like. So I'd, here would be my challenge. In the way you actually practice the Lord's Supper in groups over the next few months, try some of these things to try and enact some of the symbolism. Okay, So rather than doing it all the same, the same way every time in that cartoon way I just described, try and do some of these things. So to try and reach out for, say, blessing. This is a meal of blessing, for instance. Instead of sips of juice and corners of hovist sliced white, you might try great big hunks of sourdough bread and glasses of excellent wine. You've been... According to context, right? There might be people in the group for whom wine wouldn't be helpful. That's fine. But just think about whether there is a way of receiving this as a moment of blessing instead of, instead of as a moment of simply introspection. Or participation, right? Don't panic in your groups or even on a Sunday that communion might do something. It does do something. It brings us into fellowship or communion or participation with Jesus. I heard this thing recently from a Roman Catholic guy who somebody had asked him whether or not he'd experienced the presence of God in a meeting. And he just couldn't understand the question because from him as a Roman Catholic, the presence of God was, well, of course the presence of God was there because there was communion. So that Jesus was present in communion. So why would I, why would we need to be asked whether I felt it or not? Now, that's probably a different theology, but it was fascinating to think, actually, he's onto something because aware as he is that participation in Jesus takes place at the Lord's Supper, he's able to say, of course God is present. Embrace it. Unity. For unity, you, this might be, a, I don't know whether this is a thing for you, but a lot of English people sort of a little bit sniffy about the idea of even sharing the same glass as somebody. So we sort of drink the glass and mm, quickly de-germ it and scrub it and get fairy liquid out and, and then pass it on to the next person. And that, of course, is precisely the point that the Lord's Supper is trying to undo because it's saying, no, 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 you come together to share as one. And that means you're going to take the same cup. And I would say, go further. Drink, imagine in groups, drink deeply, and then hug one another for good measure. You don't, have to, you don't have to do that, of course. You don't have to do any of these things. But it's worth thinking, am I enacting unity here or am I trying to keep my distance from other people here? Thanksgiving, you might express Thanksgiving. By, we've, I've done this before, where you just take the, take the glasses and you put them in glasses instead of cups and you clink at the table. Just thank you, hallelujah. We celebrate as if you were toasting someone at a wedding or something. Or singing for joy through communion. Singing for joy and celebrating, not just being sort of quiet and reflective, but also celebratory. So I love communion as a charismatic. I love being in a church which is charismatic as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And just taking bread and wine and going, I am a friend of God. Whoa, I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. It's just wonderful to say, that's what this meal means. It means he's welcomed me. I want to thank him for doing that. Or remembrance. How do you celebrate remembrance? Do this as often as you drink it. So maybe celebrate communion at the meal table, maybe even when you weren't planning to. 
as often as you drink it. So you're having bread and wine for another reason, as part of a meal. Well, maybe do it then. Celebrate it then with other Christians. Proclamation. Maybe get into the habit, I've done this a a lot of times actually, of talking about the new creation that is to come, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, as part of taking communion. So encouraging believers to take the bread and the wine and then to say this is a, a promise of the day to come when the whole of creation will be fed with God's the bread of life and the whole of creation will burst forth in the mountains will flow with sweet wine and there will be peace and shalom everywhere. Proclaim it as you take it. And finally, self-examination. Repent of your sins. Call out to God. Say, Lord, You are a gracious, merciful God, and I've sinned against you, and I ask for forgiveness. And I thank you that you give me that forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. And do those things before you receive the bread and wine, and then take them as symbols and statements of his commitment to you. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to break bread together and just enact some of these things, mindful of what this meal truly means. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Father, we thank you so much for your presence with us through this meal. We thank you that it is not simply a symbol, although it is, but it's also a a promise from you, a statement of your love and commitment to us, and it's something to which we want to be devoted to get the best out of it as possible. And we pray that you would help us now, even as we share in this meal, to live in the good of the thanksgiving and the participation and the unity and all of these things we've seen, that you would be more fully formed in us as individuals and as a church and that we would be able to celebrate this meal in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen.